You probably have a watch. Without it, you would be lost in a world that demands people be on time. Some watches are more accurate than others. How accurate is yours? How long before it loses one second? Periodically, you adjust it by reckoning from a more accurate source. Whatever the source, it is also imperfect and has to be regularly updated, though not as often, to be in accord with the master clock of the United States at the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. Until 1967, naval astronomers observed the Earth's motion in relation to the heavens to accurately measure time. All U.S. clocks were set in relation to these precise measurements. It was God who made this master clock of the universe. Objection, speculation, unsupported assumptions asserted as fact. He set the heavens in motion and man learned to use its wonderful accuracy. We have no reason to believe in a God. You were supposed to provide proof of that and you haven't done it. Also, the heavens only allow us to measure time on a large scale, and even that isn't wonderfully accurate. For example, one day lasts 23 hours, 56 minutes, and 4 seconds. Every four years we have to add a day to February because the calendar isn't right either. That and the rotation of the Earth is slowing down and will continue slowing down until the moon recedes far enough that it eventually wanders away. Now, You'd think that if everything was created by an intelligence who intended that we keep track of time, then the rotation of the Earth and the number of rotations within a single orbit of the Sun would have some clear determination. Uh, it would be at least divisible and consistently measured in round numbers. But the things we'd expect of the sort of world that a god would magically create for humanity are never the things we actually see. But God's great clock holds more marvels. In 1968, scientists built an atomic clock that uses cesium-133 atoms because they vibrate at the rate of 9,192,631,770 times per second. This is accurate to within one second every 30 million years. Imagine your watch was that accurate. Cesium-133 atoms never vary a single vibration. They are steady constant, reliable, and cannot be an accident of nature that just happens to always turn out exactly the same. Why not? How would you know? Why can't the properties of natural elements be natural? I think you're saying that because you don't know what you're talking about. You remind me of this guy. Tide goes in, tide goes out. Never miscommunication. You can't explain that. You're assuming your conclusion. Elemental atomic structures and chemical compounds have natural properties as an inevitable consequence of their configuration. Add the right number of atomic particles with the appropriate bonds and this is what happens. There is no designer apparent, necessary, or even possible. That's why nothing matches whatever we want to measure, not even days or years. It's no different whether we measure time, space, warps in space-time, or any other dimension. For example, a gram is an absolute weight of a cubic centimeter of water at a temperature of melting ice, or 4 degrees Celsius. Likewise, a meter is the length of the path traveled by light in a vacuum during a time interval of 1,299,792,458 of a second. We have a constant for the speed of light, most of the time, but not for much else. Most everything else in the universe appears to be incidental arrangements shifting balance in what is usually a chaotic mess. God had to design the complexity and reliability of these atoms. No honest mind can believe otherwise. 
every honest mind can believe otherwise, and educated minds do. I have an honest mind, which is why I don't believe in your God or your religion. Faith is the most dishonest position it is possible to have. And any belief that requires faith should be rejected for that reason. And I'm certainly not alone in that. There is a statistical negative correlation that the more educated one is, the less one even can believe what you believe. Mainstream scientists overwhelmingly believe in the natural construct of elemental chemistry and physics without trying to imagine where they could fit gods or magic into the picture. For example... But the little quartz crystal always vibrates the same number of times per second, no matter what the temperature is, no matter what the pressure is, no matter what the motion of the quartz crystal is. So that's how we measure time passing, by comparing one repetitive thing to another repetitive thing. That's Sean Carroll, a professional cosmologist specializing in general relativity. He's also an outspoken atheist who honestly believes that there's no reason to believe that any god ever monkeyed with the physics, and he should know, as he is a professor of physics with a doctorate in astrophysics. Doubters consider this. Scientists at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Colorado have built an optical clock even more accurate by measuring time with light. Time is now measured in what are called femtoseconds, or a million billionth of a second. These clocks use mercury ions at their heart to count the number of times they vibrate in a second. Optical frequencies consistently oscillate at one million billion, or one quadrillion, times per second. By using lasers and cooled-down mercury ions, scientists have harnessed God's precision to better measure time. Optical clocks only slip by one second every 30 billion years. This is 1,000 times more accurate than atomic clocks. As with the movement of the heavens, men have learned to capture the reliability of cesium-133 atoms and the movement of cooled mercury ions to count time with oscillations per second that never vary. Could such perfect order really be the result of an accident? I have to guess that by accident, you mean any event that was unintended, in which case, absolutely yes. Such perfect order could only come from the calculable conditions of natural phenomena. There is no mechanism by which any being could direct such things, and there's no indication that any such being could even exist outside of human imagination. With great time and effort, the world's finest watchmakers can at best devise relatively imprecise clocks. Can any fair-minded person believe the three highly precise clocks, the heavens, atomic, and optical clocks, came by chance? That is the only option. We know they could not have been intended or deliberately manipulated, certainly not by an incantation spell cast by a god, the most primitive excuse men have ever imagined to explain anything, and which doesn't explain anything. Miracles defy the laws of physics by definition, which means that it is impossible for a god to exist, nor could he actually know anything or do anything if he did exist. And while biology, geology, and physics, and other evolutionary sciences continue to improve the human condition, religion has a perfect record of absolute absolute failure in all applications, every single time, which proves that it's wrong. 
Are we to believe that very sophisticated, humanly devised watches required the effort and ingenuity of skilled, intelligent men to create them, but clocks of far greater sophistication, precision, and design developed on their own? How utterly foolish to believe. While demonstrating that you have no understanding of the topics you're discussing, you're also criticizing all the world's best educated expert specialists anywhere ever. A survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science shows only about a third of their scientists believe in a god. A poll of the National Academy of Sciences was 85% atheist. It's almost the opposite of the laity, where we have the same percentage of common folk who believe in a god as we have educated experts who don't. But your situation is worse than that. Religious scientists are the most rare in biology, geology, and physics, the very fields that directly relate to creationism and where you would think there'd be more believers, because the evidence indicates the opposite of what you think it does. In fact, a Newsweek poll in 1987 revealed that less than 1% of earth and life scientists give any credence to creationism. So if 99.44% equals pure, as it does in the silver trade, then Bill Maher was right when he said that evolution is supported by the entire scientific community. So however you cut it, the most brilliant minds of the modern age all believe what you say only a fool could believe, and all of them could prove what you have already shown, that you are a fool. You've seen absolute proof only the greatest watchmaker, God, could have devised these greatest watches. No, we still haven't seen the slightest indication that your God could even exist, much less do anything. So far, you haven't even shown that the idea of your God warrants serious consideration. What is the truth of modern science regarding the origin of all matter in the universe? Do scientists claim it has always existed? Or have they determined there was a moment in time when all matter came into existence? The latter answer is yes. But what is the proof? The proof is that many galaxies appear red-shifted, meaning they're moving away. Space is kind of a slowly boiling mass of chaos, with some galaxies crashing into each other along with everything else. But for the most part, they're moving apart, as if the universe is expanding. That means that if we look at it in reverse, then the universe is compacting until ultimately all matter and energy, time, and even empty space, literally everything, inflated from a single point of entry called the singularity. This is the only logical conclusion mathematically calculated to nearly 14 billion years ago. Further evidence of that is the cosmic microwave background radiation, which was predicted by these calculations and then discovered in the 1970s. The first law of thermodynamics is matter and energy can be neither created nor destroyed. No natural processes can alter either matter or energy in this way. This means there is no new matter or energy coming into existence and no matter or energy passing out of existence. That's not entirely accurate. We might have matter and energy leaving the universe through black holes, which appear to be literal holes in the fabric of space-time. One explanation for the inflation of our universe from a singularity is that all matter and energy and everything else flooded into this universe from a rift in the fabric of space-time, and that ours is just one of many universes to have erupted this way. Saying the universe came into existence from nothing violates the first law of thermodynamics, established by the very scientific community now willing to ignore it. 
They're not ignoring it. And since you've demonstrated that you have no idea what you're talking about and everything you've said so far is wrong, then I can't trust anything you say and we'll have to defer to the experts. In this case, physics professor Lawrence Krauss, PhD, author of A Universe from Nothing. The simplest kind of nothing is the kind of nothing of the Bible, say the, an infinite empty space, an infinite dark void of the Bible. You know, nothing in it, no particles, no radiation, nothing. Well, that kind of nothing turns out to be full of stuff in a way, or at least much more complicated than you might have imagined, because due to the laws of quantum mechanics and relativity, we now know that empty space is a boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles that are popping in and out of existence at every moment. And in fact, for that kind of nothing, if you wait long enough, you're guaranteed by the laws of quantum mechanics to produce something. So the difference between empty space with stuff in it and empty space with nothing in it is not that great anymore. In fact, they're different versions of the same thing. So the transition from nothing to something is not so surprising. See, we always said that the most ingenious people capable of figuring out anything were rocket scientists and brain surgeons. Well, at least we can still say that about rocket scientists. This law plainly demonstrates that the universe and all matter and energy within it must have had a divine origin, a specific moment in which it was created by someone all-powerful. This law does not in any way imply that the origin of the universe should be divine, nor that it was even created by anything, much less anyone. And there is no indication that there even could be anyone who is all-powerful. You're compiling unsupported assumptions atop unwarranted assumptions. With the discovery of radium in 1898 by Madame Curie came the knowledge that all radioactive elements continually give off radiation. Consider. Uranium has an atomic weight of 238. As it decomposes, it releases a helium atom three times. Each helium atom has a weight of four. Now at 226, uranium becomes radium. Radium continues giving off additional atoms until eventually the end product becomes the heavy inert element lead. This takes a tremendous amount of time. Just radium becoming lead requires 1,590 years. What's the point? There was a time when uranium could not have existed because it always breaks down in a highly systematic and controlled way. Not stable like lead or other elements, uranium breaks down. So there was a specific moment when all radioactive elements came into existence. Remember, all of them, uranium, radium, thorium, radon, polonium, protactinium, and others have not existed forever. This represents absolute proof that matter came into existence. In other words, matter has not always existed. This flies directly in the face of evolutionary thought, that everything gradually evolved into something else. The problem? You cannot have something slowly come into existence from nothing. Matter could not have come into existence by itself. No rational person could possibly believe the entire universe, including all radioactive elements, that proved there was a specific time of beginning gradually came into existence by itself. Every rational person who knows this subject will tell you that uranium has a half-life of 4.5 billion years, which is about as old as the Earth.
But that's only its half-life, which means that uranium could exist for 9 billion years and still have a quarter of its original quantity left. Even some irrational people understand this. Sir Fred Hoyle was the scientist who first determined how uranium was created. If you have one proton, you've got hydrogen. If you could stick another one onto it, you'd have helium. When you add protons, you very often get neutrons too. Stick on another one, you've got lithium, and keep going to get beryllium, boron, carbon, and so on. Every element up to and including iron can be created this way out of no more than simple hydrogen atoms being super accelerated in, in the intense heat and pressure of the sun. Hoyle figured out that all the heavier elements beyond iron could be created this way too. It just needed a hotter furnace. So according to the World Nuclear Association, the Earth's uranium was produced in one or more supernovae over six billion years ago. This is what rational people believe. Irrational people believe in things like gods and magic. Try to build something, anything from nothing. Even with your creative power engaged in the effort, you would never be able. You cannot, in a hundred lifetimes of trying, produce a single thing from nothing. Can any doubter believe everything in the entirety of the universe, in all its exquisite detail, came into existence completely by itself? Be honest, again, accept facts. This is proof that the natural physical realm demands the existence of a great creator. I am always honest and I have no choice but to accept the facts. But what facts should I accept? We know about quantum fluctuation, we know about cosmic inflation and about how supermassive gravity affects space-time. We also know that the natural physical realm does not demand any kind of magical creator. Because, as my friend Victor Stenger said, we have perfectly workable scenarios for how the universe could have come about naturally, from nothing, along with the laws of physics and so on. So why don't you be honest and accept the facts? The second law of thermodynamics is best summarized by saying everything moves toward disorder, a condition known as entropy. This bears some explanation. Remember, evolutionists teach that everything is constantly evolving into a higher and more complex order. They believe things continue to get better and better instead of worse and worse. You got a point there. Just look at your own promo ad. In a violent age full of war, famine, pollution, disease, disasters, and economic uncertainty, and ever-worsening bad news. You're trying to scare people into desperate beliefs. You long for the good old days when only white, heterosexual, Protestant, Christian men had rights, and you don't want to acknowledge all the advances in technology, medicine, agriculture, and humanity. You'd rather pretend that everything's getting worse and worse. But if you look at the actual numbers, you've got everything backwards. You'll see that the crime rate, and particularly acts of violent crime, are actually going down. Things that were commonly accepted a generation ago are now considered atrocities because we're maturing. The only thing that's actually getting worse and worse is the environment, which you won't admit is an issue even to be addressed. These are some of the reasons why the world is moving away from religious beliefs. Another is the correlation between deep religiosity and criminality, excessive hatred, violence, corporal punishment, capital punishment, torture, and the abuse and molestation of dependents, children, and animals. Once upon a time, religious people were automatically revered as upstanding morality, but not anymore. Religion is mostly associated with irrational ignorance, intolerance, and bigotry now. If water on a stove is at 150 degrees Fahrenheit and the burner is turned off, the temperature drops instead of rises. It moves toward colder, not hotter. Balls on hills always roll down, not up. 
energy to perform any task changes from usable to unusable during the task. It will always go from a higher energy level to a lower one, where less and less energy is available. Applied to the universe, the second law of thermodynamics reveals that the universe is winding down, moving toward disorder, entropy, not winding up, or moving toward more perfect order and structure. In short, the entire universe is slowing down. Even evolutionists admit that the theory of evolution and this law are completely incompatible. Notice. Regarding the second law of thermodynamics, universally accepted scientific law, which states that all things left to themselves will tend to run down, or the law of entropy, it is observed it would hardly be possible to conceive of two more completely opposite principles than this principle of entropy increase and the principle of evolution. Each is precisely the converse of the other. As Aldous Huxley defined it, evolution involves a continual increase of order, of organization, of size, of complexity. It seems axiomatic that both cannot possibly be true. But there is no question whatever that the second law of thermodynamics is true. You just presented Henry Morris as if he were an evolutionist, meaning someone who accepts mainstream science as opposed to dogmatic belief in magical fairy tales. But Henry Morris never accepted or even understood evolution. He founded the Institute for Creation Research, an anti-science apologetics ministry whose mission is to mislead and deceive those who would have otherwise understood and accepted science and consequently discard the sacred fables on which their form of religious extremism depends. Now, even if you meant to refer to Morris's mention of Huxley, Thomas Huxley was an evolutionary scientist. Aldous Huxley was not. Aldous was a mystic, and he apparently did not understand that evolution does not require a continuous increase in order, organization, size, or even complexity. All of these can stagnate or fluctuate. Just to clarify, no evolutionist ever, not even one, ever agreed that the second law of thermodynamics posed any kind of problem for evolution because, and you forgot to mention this, that law only applies to a closed system. But that doesn't matter here because the Earth is not a closed system. Evolution, like all aspects of biology, derives its energy from the sun. So the reason that McDonald's became an increasingly complex and highly prolific international company is the same reason that evolution works also. Like a top or a yo-yo, the universe must have been wound up. Since it is constantly winding down, the second law of thermodynamics begs a great question. Who wound it up? The only plausible answer, God. You think God is a plausible answer? Plausible, a God. You think that it reasonable or probable to imagine that the universe was poofed out of nothing by an incantation cast by a magic invisible genie? You're right about one thing. It does beg the question. Question begging is a logical fallacy of circular reasoning in which you include the conclusion to be proven in the premise of the question. In this case, who wound it up? assumes that someone must have done it, as opposed to something, and it assumes that it was wound up. Cosmology doesn't apply either of these things. We have established that creation demands a creator. Now some amazing scientific proofs of creation. Evolution is shot full of inconsistencies. You know, there is a difference between evidence for creation and evidence against evolution. 
you don't have either one. I just want to point out that even if you could disprove evolution, that wouldn't be evidence for creation. You also need evidence for creation. And for that, you would need facts that positively indicate that conclusion. You haven't listed any ever in this whole series. Evolutionists have seized on many theories within the overall theory in an attempt to explain the origins of plants, animals, the heavens, and the earth. Over and over, these theorists try to explain how life evolved from inanimate material into more complex life forms until reaching the pinnacle, human beings. Yet, as one geologist wrote, it must be significant that nearly all the evolutionary stories I learned as a student have been debunked. I've been arguing with creationists regularly for decades, so I know how they use out-of-context quote mining. We'll get into more of that later in this series. The quote you're talking about now was first cited by Dwayne Gish from the Institute of Creation Research. I tried to find the complete original comment and finally found it referenced by Kenneth Saladin, who debated Gish. Saladin said, I couldn't find Ager's paper in the library anywhere, and librarians of two campuses told me that no such journal had ever existed as Gish cited. So finally I wrote to Ager, and I have his letter with me tonight if you'd like to see it. Ager says, first of all, Gish got the name of the journal and the year of the publication wrong, but then he did enclose the paper Gish meant to cite. Now, the complete sentence Dr. Gish alludes to reads... It must be significant that nearly all the evolutionary stories I learned as a student, from Truman's Austria Graphia to Carruthers' Zafrentis Delanois, have been debunked. This makes it sound like evolution wholesale has been debunked. Eger was only talking about the evolution of Austria, which is oyster-like bivalve mollusks, from Graphia, another bivalve, and saying that the previous interpretations of the relationship had been mistaken. So no, your source misrepresented Ager. He did not imply that any significant concept in evolution had ever been debunked. And this quote was mined out of context and stripped of some of its original content to create a deliberately deceptive illusion. In other words, it's a lie. There are no theories within a theory either, but I'll explain to you what a theory is and how that works in a later video. For now, I'll just point out that humans are not the pinnacle of evolution, and even Darwin knew that 150 years ago. The biggest reason so many theories within the overall theory of evolution collapse is because they contain terrible logic requiring great leaps in faith to believe. When I first heard you say this, I thought, he can't even show one theory of evolution that ever collapsed, nor can he show me any that have terrible logic. And how would he know if he did, since his own logic is so bad? More importantly, I knew you wouldn't be able to provide even one example of a debunked evolutionary theory, and I was right. You didn't, because you can't. Here is one example of a debunked theory. Many evolutionists have tried to argue that humans are 99% similar chemically to apes, and blood precipitation tests do indicate that the chimpanzee is people's closest relative. Yet regarding this, we must observe the following. Milk chemistry indicates that the donkey is man's closest relative. Cholesterol level tests indicate that the garter snake is man's closest relative. Tear enzyme chemistry indicates that the chicken is man's closest relative. On the basis of another type of blood chemistry test, the butter bean is man's closest relative. More people should weep for evolutionists. Don't patronize me. You're the one who's pathetic. What you just said was the most inane argument I've ever heard from any creationist, and that's saying something.
I'm stunned by the unprecedented stupidity of the various comparisons you made just now. I don't trust anything Henry Moore has ever said, and if he got everything wrong here, that would be consistent with everything I've ever read from him, but I'm not going to look up these other items because they don't matter. I'm only going to focus on the important one. Our similarity to chimpanzees was not determined by any blood precipitation test. We're not talking about impurities in the blood, we're talking about DNA. And I suspect that you already knew that, and that you paraphrased this so that you would conceal what we're really talking about. Our relationship to other apes was confirmed genetically, using the same technology as a paternity test to prove who your daddy really is, and that's exactly what it did. This happened multiple ways, and this is important. First, we can use genetic markers, specific mutations that have appeared in and are unique to particular ethnic regions. And through genetic sequence analysis, scientists with the Genographic Project have mapped genetic patterns of human ancestral migration. Then there's mitochondria, which is actually a disabled infectious bacteria trapped within our own cells and which our cells depend on to exist. How's that for intelligent design? Mitochondria has its own DNA, separate from ours, and that has a fairly regular mutation rate, which can be used to estimate ages. It is also exclusively inherited from the mother. So this, in concert with genomic sequence analysis, will only trace your maternal lineage and can pr provide a reasonable estimate of time, such that we know that your great-great-great-etc. grandmother was also mine, and she lived in Africa 100,000 to 200,000 years ago, part of a larger population. There's actually a string of mitochondrial eaves. Endogenous retroviruses, or ERVs, account for about 8% of the human genome, and they too can be treated as genetic markers and precisely matched to distantly related groups, showing where certain infections were inherited by a common ancestor at some point in the past. Some of these are common to all humans, and they match ERVs of the same type and location in the genome of apes and monkeys, proving a familial relationship with them as well. Finally, there's the most important one. We can trace the course of our evolution using protein functional redundancy. The more correlated sequences of ubiquitous genes in different organisms, the closer they're related. It's no coincidence that our genome is so similar to the other apes. It is the string of chemical instructions of how we develop. That's why it is so significant that we share almost all of our DNA with chimps, and that 96% of that is long strings of hundreds of codons at a time that match precisely. That really is demonstrable, verifiable, absolute proof that we evolved from apes. You made a five-part video series pretending to prove the existence of something that isn't really real. I've made three videos about it so far, and I'm not even done addressing your first video yet. I could make a career out of you, because you're so prolific, and everything you say is wrong. One thing that is obvious is that you've spent your life in an echo chamber. You've never even heard the scientific perspective. So this should be an educational experience for you, and if not for you, then it will be an education for those who once believed you.